I'm uh, been delighted to be with you for these uh, five nights, and we have talked about such massive themes. We've talked about how I've been arguing, actually, that Christianity can give you a meaning in life that uh, suffering can't take away. It can give you a satisfaction, a contentment that is abiding. It's not based on circumstances. We've talked about the fact that Christianity gives you a unique identity, different than any other, uh, different than any other culture will uh, give you because it's, it's not an achieved identity based on your performance. It's a received identity based on Christ's regard of you. And because it's so unique, it's completely different. It's based on his regard of you, not on your performance. It doesn't wax and wane. Your self-esteem, your self-regard doesn't wax and wane depending on how successful you are in a given time or a given day, even in work or in love. Uh, it brings, we were talking about, it brings about a kind of unique freedom. Uh, if you, any other kind of identity, since it's based on performance, what it means is that uh, you might be humble if you're living up, if you're not living up to your standards, you're not performing well. You might be humble and kind and understanding to people, but not confident. If you are living up to your standards, you could be very confident and bold, but usually self-righteous and condescending toward others. But Christianity says in yourself, you're a sinner. In Jesus Christ, you're absolutely, utterly loved. There's no condemnation any longer for you. And that gives you a unique combination of both. You can't be superior to anyone. There's a humility and a boldness at the same time. There's all sorts of ways in which uh, the Christian identity, the Christian gospel gives you freedoms uh, from, what, uh, from cultural conformity, from public opinion. Uh, it gives you a satisfaction. It gives you meaning. And we're not done. One more. One more thing to talk about tonight. It gives you a future hope. And uh, uh, to do this, uh, to bring it out tonight, I want to read you a, one more passage uh, from the book of John. I'm going to read to you from John chapter 20. It's a short passage. It's verses 24 to 29. Very, very famous. Let me read it to you. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas, who was known as Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, uh, this is a, an account of a time in which Jesus Christ, after his resurrection from the dead, appeared to Thomas. And here's what I like to uh, learn from this passage. First, about the necessity of future hope. It's absolutely necessary we have a future hope. And then secondly, something about the nature of the future hope that Christianity can give you. The necessity of future hope, the nature of the future hope that Christianity gives you. So first of all, the necessity. Um, to get across what I mean by that, we are unavoidably, irreducibly, 
hope-based creatures. To uh, uh, demonstrate, imagine you uh, get two men. They are uh, men of the same age, they're the men of the same uh, socioeconomic status, uh, same educational level, they're men of the same temperament, so they're essentially identical in every way. And you hire them, and you uh, say, I want you every day, all day, to do a particular uh, operation. Let's say, put a widget on a widget, over and over and over again. Pretty tedious. A widget and a widget. And you put them in identical rooms, identical lighting, identical temperature, identical ventilation, identical conditions in every way. It's very boring work, 10 hours a day, uh, only 30 minutes off for lunch. Uh, and so it's, they're, they're, they're identical in every way, but only one difference. You tell the first man, at the end of a year, I will pay you 10,000 pounds. And you tell the second man, at the end of the year, I will pay you 10 million pounds. So after a couple of weeks, you know, they eat together, and the first guy is saying, isn't this tedious? Isn't this awful? Don't you hate it? Isn't it driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the, other, the second man says, no. No. Actually, I kind of enjoy it. In fact, I whistle while I work. What's going on? Here you have two men who are experiencing the same circumstances in radically different ways, and their experience is determined by their expected future. What they believe about their future completely controls how they're experiencing their present. They are, we are utterly, unavoidably, irreducibly hope-based creatures. And what we think about our future completely determines how you are experiencing your present. Uh, this is actually, there's ramifications of this for entire cultures. We won't even go into this, but uh, one of my favorite books is written by an American academic, uh, a, uh, a secular author, by the way, not a Christian author, uh, Andrew Delbanco, who teaches at Columbia University, and he wrote a book some years ago called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And uh, he's thinking at a cultural level, but listen to this, he says, the heart of any culture is its hope. Hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all of our getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we wait for death. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our own, our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim back-of-the-mind suspicion that we are adrift in an absurd world. Every culture, he says, has got to give people hope or else they do just sink into absurdity. Because what we think about the future, what our future is, completely determined, is, determines how we experience the present. Now, uh, what is the Christian response to this incredibly profound human need? And the answer is the fact of the resurrection. Why do I say fact? Well, let me just show you in the text. It's interesting that um, Thomas... Uh, says, uh, when everybody else says, Jesus is raised from the dead, we've seen him. And he says, I'm not going to believe that. So why, why, this is why this has been a very uh, precious text to many people, especially those of us of a more, and I say of us, of just a general skeptical bent. 
And he says, I'm not going to believe until uh, he appears to me and I can put my hands in his side where his wounds were and I can put my finger in the holes uh, where they uh, nailed, put the nails and spikes through his hands. I'm not going to believe till then. And then what happens, of course, the, the account says that Jesus Christ appears to him visibly and then actually says, you can touch me. Now, and yet, the very last thing Jesus says almost seems to contradict what he's doing, what Jesus is doing by appearing. Because the last verse says, the last thing Jesus says is, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. So what he's saying, and there's plenty of people probably in this room who can attest to it. I certainly can attest, attest to it. You can actually certainly believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You can achieve tremendous certainty about that without ever having had a visible uh, encounter, physical encounter with the risen Christ. Jesus says that right there. So if that's the case, if you don't really need this, why did he show up for Thomas? And the answer is, it says here, now Thomas, known as Didymus, was one of the 12. He was one of the 12. 12 apostles. And the answer to my question is, Thomas did not need to actually meet the risen Christ, physically encounter the risen Christ in order to be a believer, but he did need to encounter the physical and uh, risen Christ to be an apostle, to be one of the 12. Because the apostles were Jesus' chosen uh, messengers who were going to take the message of the gospel, the message of Christ, to the world. And the fact that, that uh, Thomas needed to actually see Jesus risen from the dead tells me something, tells us something about that message. What is that message? Well, the message of Jesus Christ, the, the core of the message of the gospel, is not Jesus' ethical teaching. Jesus had wonderful ethical teaching. Uh, turn the other cheek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Forgive your enemies. Very famous. Come down to us. Marvelous. Sublime. But Thomas didn't need to see the risen Christ if his job was to transmit the message and the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. At the core was live a good life. Love, forgive, peace, make. Is that the core of what it means? No. See, it's a historical fact that the message of Jesus Christ changed. I mean, it, it, it changed so many lives and it spread so much through the masses that within 200 years, that incredibly strong, classical, Greco-Roman, pagan culture was almost completely supplanted by Christianity. It's astounding. And the only way that could have happened was not because there was a little Christian movement here or there or that uh, some of the intellectual classes or some of the middle classes uh, became Christian so we had uh, a different kind of society. No, the masses went Christian. The downtrodden went Christian. They're still going Christian. Go to Latin America, go to Africa now. And what would the poor and the downtrodden, what would change their lives about Christianity? The ethical teaching? Is that what the poor and downtrodden? Are the poor and the downtrodden going to say, oh, turn the other cheek. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Forgive your enemies. Now, finally, finally, I, I have a message that after my years of darkness, say the poor and the downtrodden, I finally have got some way to conquer my despair and something that will uh, change my life and something that will heal my heart. No, they need a message of hope. And here's the message of hope. The message of Christianity is not what you must do. It's not 
here's the ethical prescriptions, now live like this, that would be one more burden on us. No, the message of Christianity is what Jesus Christ has done. That he died and rose. That's the reason why Thomas had to see it. That he died and rose. That's the message of Christianity. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took away the barrier between us and God. And when he rose from the dead, he destroyed sin and death. That's the reason why the downtrodden of the world can say, no matter who I am or what I've done, no matter what I've been, no matter what the record is, I can be reborn into the kingdom of God. And whatever level of success in this life I have in my struggle for freedom, I still have hope. Why? Because my future is certain. Because the resurrection's a fact. The resurrection is not a fact. There is no message of hope. All you've got are ethical, good ethical principles. In fact, you know, today there's plenty of people who say that's the heart of Christianity. We can't take the Bible literally, they say. We can't take the resurrection literally. We can't believe in that. Uh, we believe the resurrection is a wonderful symbol. What it means to be a Christian is to live a good life, live according to the teachings of Jesus, and the resurrection is a wonderful symbol. All right, what's it a symbol of? Well, it's a symbol of how even in the darkest times there's always hope. That's not true. Have you not lived life? Life is not like that. Sometimes there's hope after darkness, but a lot of times there's none, none at all. And if you say the resurrection is a symbol that reflects the fact of life, that there's always hope after darkness, it's a lie because life's not like that. The resurrection as a symbol of how life is, it's a lie. But the resurrection as a fact can actually change life. Because if the resurrection really happened, then Jesus Christ has opened a cleft in the pitiless walls of the world. There was this concrete slab, as it were, between the ideal and the real. And in the resurrection, Jesus Christ punched a hole in it. And now the divine life comes in. If the, if the resurrection's a fact, then the downtrodden of the world said, now I've got something that I, I, I have a hope. I've got a hope for the future. I've got a hope for myself. Not here's a bunch of nice, wonderful principles. Because if that's all you have, listen, middle-class people sometimes can get excited about philosophy. They can get excited about ethical principles, but not the masses, not the people who are really stuck in the darkness of this world. The resurrection as a fact, the resurrection as a fact, that's what changes life, that's what changes your life, and that's what will change the world. Now, let's just take a second here, because some of you are saying, how do you know it's a fact? And you know, finally, especially if you've been here before, finally I can say, not only am I talking to you about something that Christianity offers, so powerful that you should want it to be true, finally I'm talking about something that also is strong evidence that it is true. <laughs> and that's the resurrection itself. Um, look, Richard Dawkins uh, says you shouldn't believe anything you can't prove. He doesn't like faith. Don't believe anything you can't prove. He does admit at one point I don't have the actual page, but he does admit at one point, though, that there's nothing that happened in history that we can prove just the way you prove a logical theorem or the way you prove, uh, you know, something in a test tube. And yet, it would be foolish not to say we can be sure of many historical facts. No, you can't prove them in the same way you can prove, you know, something logically, demonstratively. But you certainly can say there are such things as historical facts. And I believe if you just use the, the ways in which people check out uh, the truth of historical claims, 
the resurrection is a historical fact too. I'll just, just, just a little tiny slice of two. Just think like this. Here's a little bit of historical reasoning. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how do you account for the birth of the Christian church? Give me a historically viable alternate explanation. You may say, well, resurrection is not an explanation. Okay, give me a better explanation because here's what happened. We know from the letters of Paul, at least, Paul's first letters were written just a decade and a half or so after Jesus' life. And we know from Paul's letters that there were thousands of Jews who virtually immediately after the death of Jesus Christ began worshiping him as God on the strength of the fact that he was raised from the dead. They were worshiping him as God. Now look, in the East, when the idea of God is God is, is uh, in everything, to talk about an individual being a god or an avatar or something, that's no big deal. But the Jews' understanding of God was he was infinitely transcendent above the world. He's the creator of all things, self-sufficient. And the idea that a human being would be God, the Jews were the last people on the face of the earth to believe that a human being would be God. They won't even, you know, Orthodox Jews even to this day will not, they won't even write the name of God. And yet thousands of Jews almost immediately began worshiping Jesus as God. Look, worldviews change, but not overnight. You know, there's papers written, and there's books written, and there's, and there's parties that begin, and there's divisions, and there's fights. Not overnight. What did it? And the answer, of course, is the claims were that we, hundreds of people saw him, not just one or two. Hundreds of people saw him raised from the dead. And one thing on the witness, which I, you know, is the simplest one to quickly convey, you say, well, how do you know that those witnesses were credible? Well, in the Gospels, and this is one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've got early eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do we know that those things are reliable? Well, there's a lot of tests, but I'll just give you one. The first people in every Gospel account who saw Jesus Christ, every single one of them, the first people were women. We know that in that very patriarchal society, women had such low status that both in Roman courts and in Jewish courts, women's testimony was not admissible evidence. They were considered unreliable. You know, that's, that's lamentable, but that's the way it was. And therefore, if you're making up an account of Jesus' resurrection, if you're trying to push your faith, you would never, never in a million years put women as the first witnesses. There would have been enormous prejudice on the part of almost any pagans reading that thing. So give me, give me an explanation for why women are in there as the first witnesses. About the only possible reason that they'd be in those texts is if they were. And they just had to be put in there because they were. That was the story. There's no other reason why they, they would be in there. There's quite a bit of evidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, then it's not what he said, but what he did that will really change your life. If Jesus Christ came mainly as a teacher and said, like all the other founders of all other religions, and said, live like this and you will find God, then he'd be no different. Than all, and Christianity wouldn't be different than any other religion. But Jesus Christ is not one more founder saying, here's the way to God. Jesus Christ says, I'm God, come to find you. Every other religion says, here's what you have to do to save yourself. Here's the eightfold path. Here's the five pillars. Here's what you must do to save yourself. Jesus Christ says, no, I have come to do 
what saves you. I'm not here to tell you what you must do. I'm telling you what I've done to save you. I lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you should have died in your place as your substitute so that when you believe in me, my resurrection power comes in and begins to change your life now and at the end of time, you'll be raised physically and you'll be part of that glorious future. That is the future hope that Christianity offers. And the reason I'm going to not end right here, because I said this is why we have to have a hope and this is the power of a hope, but I'd like to talk to you a little bit about why the Christian future hope is actually unique. Because I can just hear a question coming saying, well, aren't there other, um, you know, religions that offer an afterlife and that sort of kind of hope? Yeah, but let me give you three ways in which Christi the Christian hope is unique. It's unique because it's personal, because it's certain, because it's unimaginably wonderful. It's, first of all, it's personal. Notice when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he recognizes him. He recognizes them. There's actually a lot of interesting discussion um, in all of these first accounts. Uh, when the, uh, on the road to Emmaus, when the two disciples meet Jesus, when Mary Magdalene meets Jesus, they look, at first they don't, and then they say, oh, it's you. It's still Jesus. Jesus is still himself. Do you know how important that is? Both in East today, in Eastern countries, but also in ancient times, the Greeks, uh, Greek philosophers believe this, and today, especially in the West, more and more people are trying to mitigate the problem of, of being afraid of death, being despondent in the, in the face of death. We showed, I think I quoted earlier this week, how Tolstoy at one point said just that the idea of extinction just made everything he was doing uh, meaningless. And uh, one of the ways in which we deal with this in our modern culture is to say, hey, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We continue, even after death, we're still part of life. Remember the Lion King? There's the great Lion King, and he's talking to his son, Simba. And he says, Simba, Simba, yes, yes, we do eat antelopes. We, you know, we chew them to bits. It's, you know, it's bloody. It's awful. But, but, when we die, our bodies fertilize and enrich the ground. And out of the ground grows the grass, and the antelopes eat the grass, and then we eat the antelopes. And so we're all, it's all part of the circle of life. We're all part of the circle of life. How wonderful. Uh, and, uh, and when you die, you, you stay as part of the circle of life, so you continue in a way. Now, in a way, the Greek Stoics believe something like that, too. Eastern folks say the same sort of thing, uh, Eastern uh, religions, I mean. And, and, and so why be afraid? Why be afraid? Because you continue on in, a, in an impersonal way, of course, because you're either part of the ground or you're part of the cosmos in some way, but you're all part of the circle of life. But look... If our future after death is non-existence or impersonal existence, that means there's no love there. Because in order to have love, you have to have persons. And there's, if, we're not, if you're not yourself after death, if you're not a self after death, then you've lost everything. Because see, what we most want in life is love. And where we... Where, our life is most meaningful when we have love. And once we have love, the most important thing in the world is not to lose love. And you're going to tell me, oh, it's wonderful, you're just part of the circle of life. You're going to tell me that at death, I'm going to be stripped of everything that means anything to me. Because what I want more than anything else is love without parting. I want love. You want love. And in order to do that, there's got to be persons. And it's of no consolation 
that kind of hope. No consolation at all, not if you think about it. And you know, John Updike in his uh, memoirs uh, called Self-Consciousness, it's just a memoir of his life, he actually, his last chapter, where he talks a little bit about why he was a Lutheran Christian and why Christianity was important to him. You can, t you, you actually, I don't even have to tell you, I'll just tell you, um, I'll tell you what the answer is by the title of his last chapter in his book, On Being a Self Forever. On Being a Self Forever. Not part of the circle of life, not just part of stardust, not just part of the ground, it's on being a self. And I think what's going to happen to us, if we believe and we're resurrected, something like what was happening to them on the road to Emmaus, we're going to look at each other and we're going to say, it is you, isn't it? Yeah. I saw a seed of this in you in our earthly life. But now look at you. Look at how beautiful you are. Look at how glorious. I knew you could be like this. And now you are. See, that's what you want. That's the hope of your heart. Christianity gives it to you. It's a personal future. Secondly, though, uh, kind of briefly, it's, a, it's also a certain future. Here's what I mean. This hope is of no real um, value to you if you're not sure that, it, that you're going to get there. See, sometimes you say, I've had people say, well, the resurrection is wonderful, but I don't know. I don't know if I'll make it. I don't know if the guy's going to, I don't know if he's really accepted me. I don't, how do I know that this is really going to happen to me? How do I know? Well, weirdly enough, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the way for you to be certain that if you believe in him, you'll be resurrected. You know why? You know what the resurrection of Christ is? It basically is the vindication of the cross. Or another way to put it is, it proves that the cross was effective. Or let me put it like this. Uh, if you're... Um, convicted of a crime, and the judge says, sentenced, five years in prison. Okay, so broke the law, wages of, of sin is five years. So you go into prison, and when you have paid the price, when there is nothing more to pay, when you have fulfilled and satisfied the demands of the law, how do you know that you have fulfilled and satisfied the demands of the law? You get out, you walk out. And because you're walking out, that means it's all been paid. The Bible says, what, is, what are the wages of rebelling against God, refusing to allow God to be God in your life, refusing to acknowledge the fact that you owe him everything, but you, you live your life the way you want? What is the wages of that? Death. And when Jesus Christ died and then walked out, it meant it was paid. It was paid. You know, I'm sure that in Britain, everybody trusts everybody else. It's not that way in America. I just want you to know that. Because in America, when you go into a store, a department store, uh, something like that, you buy something, and then they give you uh, the, the purchase. They give it to you, and you're walking around with a bag, and there are these things they call plainclothes policemen in the stores, or generally security guards in the stores who are watching for shoplifters. So sometimes they'll come over to you, because they see you walking around with the uh, a package and say, could I look in that package, please? Because they're trying to see whether or not everything in the package was purchased. And if you are of a more dramatic sort, and uh, there are many Americans who are, what you do is you, they walk over and they say, could I look in there? What you do is you open up, you reach in, and you find the receipt, and you pull it out, and you say, trouble me not. <laughs> this is proof that I've paid. 
You cannot make me pay for it again. And, of course, uh, the, uh, the plainclothes policeman, you know, usually uh, backs away in co with confusion of face and says, forgive me uh, for even questioning you. But you know what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is? It's a receipt. It is a receipt stamped across history in letters so big that nobody can fail to see them that your sin, your debt, has been paid in full. And you can be certain. If he was raised from the dead, you believe in him, you will be. Here's one more thing, and it's important. And that is that the resurrection is unimaginably wonderful. Uh, yeah, there's other, there's other uh, religions that offer an afterlife. I told you some of them offer only an impersonal afterlife. That's not the deep need of the heart. We need love. Well, but aren't there others that offer a personal afterlife? Yeah, but it's only heaven. It's only spiritual. And the resurrection, by definition, means the redemption not just of my spirit, but of my body. And the resurrection means that God's going to actually renew the material creation. He's going to give us a new heaven and new earth. And you know what this means? This means that, well, listen, let me start like this. One of the things that I, one poem, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, which in some ways is very, very dark, in some ways very, very hard to understand, but it's very powerful because you have this black bird, the raven, constantly saying over and over and over again, nevermore, nevermore. And even though I'm not utterly sure of this, and I probably should read some literary criticism of it, it seems to me that what Poe is getting across is the irretrievability of life. There's a kind of death in the midst of life. And the longer you are alive, the more you'll start to experience that death in the midst of life. And that is when things go away that, that you know, at least within the walls of this world, will never be brought back to you. Some, sometimes there are opportunities that you've missed. I mean, some of you as young people already know you've missed some opportunities that will never come back to you. Uh, it's not just that. There's, there's people that you lose you know will never come back, and relationships, and even places. I mean, for Kathy and I, it's, uh, it's uh, her family's old summer cottage on the shores of Lake Erie. Not only are the cottages gone forever, but the beach is gone forever. And, and there's an irretrievability, there's a loss in the middle of life, which is a kind of death in the middle of life, and the resurrection says no to nevermore. Because the resurrection says you are not simply going to get a consolation for the life you've lost. You know, that's heaven, bliss. You're not just going to get a consolation for the life you lost. You are going to get a re the restoration of the life you lost. You, you won't just get your body back. You'll get the body back that you never had, that you wished you had. You won't just get your life back. You'll get the life back that you never had, but you wished you had. You're not going to miss out on anything. It's because this isn't just a, a consolation, it's, it's, a, it's a restoration. In that great article, which was a lecture by J.R.R. Tolkien, called On Fairy Stories, he tries to explain why it is, um, and this has very much irritated the, the, the literati you know, of the world, that people still spend so much money on reading and consuming movies, plays, books, stories, that are fairy tales. They're, um, uh, th those are the movies that are blockbusters. They've got magic in them and they've got sorcerers and they've got you know, dwarves and elves and hobbits and things like that. And the people just, instead of the high literature, 
realistic fiction. That's what people want to imbibe. And he was trying to explain what's going on there. And he actually said they were at five, they're in the, in the uh, essay, he says there's five things that human beings seem to have a, a, such a deep longing for. And those five things are to be able to step outside of time, to escape death, to have love without parting, to hold communion with non-human beings, and to see good finally triumph over evil. Yeah? Step outside time, escape from death, love without parting, uh, communication with non-human beings, and good triumphing over evil. And he says, we have such a deep longing that we cannot get rid of uh, that, that fantasy fiction, fairy tales, uh, even though we know they're fairy tales, even though we know they're not realistic, we, uh, especially if they're told well, it, it gets to something in us that is satisfying, that we, we just want to see it depicted. And when we see it depicted well, it brings a joy. Which is because somehow deep down we sense this is the way w the world ought to be. In some ways we're getting in touch with some kind of reality, not, not real life, but maybe a reality, uh, the, the life as it ought to be. And Tolkien says, realistic fiction will never scratch that itch. Realistic fiction will never quench that thirst. And people will still spend all this money and, and spend all this time and they, uh, well-told stories that depict those five things. We want them, we long for them. Now, Christians have a good ex explanation for that. It's a memory trace. We believe it's a memory trace deep in the soul. Human beings all know that that's what we originally were made for. But here's what the resurrection means. Think about this, listen. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact, all those five things will come literally true for you. No, they're not true now, of course, they're fiction. Escape from death, stepping outside time, communication with non-human beings, love without parting, good triumphing over evil finally. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact and you believe in him, those aren't fairy tales. They won't be anymore. Why wouldn't you want that to be true? See, the resurrection, uh, how do I put it? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no greater human hope possible. There's, the heart wants this, desperately wants this. Nothing can answer the deepest needs of the human heart like this. And even if you're not sure it is true, you should certainly be motivated to find out if it is true. 